0: Exodus 9. As always, thankful. I'm thankful for our musicians and all the time and effort they put into leading us every single Sunday, twice on Sundays. Really appreciate them. Exodus 9. So, how are you doing this morning? (laughs) Seriously, it's kind of a heavy question to jump into, but is life fulfilling and satisfying for you? Are you getting all that you think you're meant to get out of your days and of this life? Or do you at times have this nagging suspicion that maybe there is something missing? It doesn't quite feel right. You're not quite hitting the bullseye dead on when it comes to living this life. Human beings are designed, we are built to do a certain thing. We're created with one giant overarching purpose and goal. We're supposed to live toward a certain end. Now we're capable of doing lots of things and we're capable of giving our time and our attention to a whole bunch of different things. But in all of that activity, In all of the focus that we give, there's one main goal and purpose for which we were created and for which we were designed. It's frustrating to use a hammer for a a precision, uh, as a precision tool. Let's say it that way. It's frustrating because it was not built for that. It was not designed for that. And so you really will be left unsatisfied if you try to use it for some other purpose. On the other hand, it's very satisfying to use a hammer to pound a nail into a piece of wood. It's not much better than that. It's like, this thing was made for this, and this is fun (laughs) to do it this way, right? God has created the world and everything in it for one purpose. And the one purpose is to ultimately put his character on display to showcase who he is. And human beings within that purpose are designed. Our main purpose and our main end is to find our joy and our happiness and our satisfaction and fulfillment in knowing him, living for his glory, to put him on display and having communion and fellowship with him, That's it. That's the highest purpose. That's the main thing that you and I were created for. One author put it this way. Never doth a soul know what solid joy and substantial pleasure is, till, once being weary of itself, it renounces all propriety and gives itself up to the author of its being. Are you weary of yourself this morning? Are you tired of all the secondary purposes and the secondary goals? It's easy to forget what we were made for. There's so much else going on. It's easy to have our attention diverted to a a lesser goal. And I'm praying this morning that God will use this passage that we're going to look at to help us once again to clarify our purpose and to see what it's all about. And this passage clarifies our purpose by making God's purpose explicit. It tells us what he is all about in this particular action that he does in Exodus, but then in every other action and every other thing that he does it's for this goal and for this purpose now as we get into this passage we're entering into the third cycle of plagues so the nine initial plagues are all building toward a climax of the tenth plague the death of the firstborn son and they come in three waves of three and we're now entering into this last wave And you will see this morning that things intensify quite a bit here, and they get increasingly destructive. People start to die in these plagues. Things get really, really bad for the nation of Egypt. But as things intensify and as they get worse for Egypt, and as it moves toward the climax, God makes it abundantly clear that he has stretched this out for so long that he's continued to bring about these signs and these plagues for this purpose, to honor and glorify himself by making his name known around the world. And, And not just around the world, but even down through time. God's purpose is being accomplished this morning, millennia later, by us talking about this and realizing just how powerful and sovereign this God is who accomplishes these works. And our response to this this morning should be to remember that God's purposes for his actions should be our goal and our purposes for our lives. If he does all that he does to honor and glorify himself and to put his character on display, then we were made, he, he created us in order to know him, to put his character on display and to bring him honor and glory. And everything else in your life this morning and everything else in my life is secondary to that singular purpose. So keep in mind, as we get into this with that goal, that the, the summary statement of all of the plagues, at least all of the nine that we've looked at this morning, or uh, for the first, uh, over the first few weeks of doing this, this, is our third week looking at these plagues. But here's the summary statement for us. God's sovereignty over nature displayed in these signs the way he controls all of these elements of the created order shows his superiority over any rival gods, over any other gods. His sovereignty shows his superiority. And it happens through these nine, ultimately ten signs. And we're going to look at seven through nine this morning. So Exodus chapter 9, verse 13 is where we're going to start. Here the seventh plague begins. I had Dick read a portion of the text that we're going to look at because I didn't want it to uh, stretch on all morning for him to read the whole thing because it's long. But he read the seventh one, and this is where we're going to start. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. Now, if you've been with us in the study of the plagues, you know that each of the cycles begins the same way, with Moses going out to Pharaoh early in the morning. And the first two cycles, the first plague and the fourth plague, begin and mention that he goes out to Pharaoh while Pharaoh's going down into the Nile River. And of course, that was a religious ritual that Pharaoh was performing by bathing in the Nile River. And we can assume once again in the seventh plague, the third cycle, that the same thing happens. Moses goes out and meets him early in the morning while Pharaoh is engaging in this religious ritual to connect with the gods of Egypt. Now, once again, the same demand is put on Pharaoh. But as Moses demands that Pharaoh release the Israelites so they can serve God rather than serving Pharaoh, Now we get a really rich and full explanation of why all of these plagues have happened and why they'll continue. Look at verses 14 through 16. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself. He's going to target Pharaoh specifically and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God is basically saying here that he has restrained himself. He could have ended this thing with one shot across the bow. One plague could have ended this, but he's restrained himself up to this point. And he's done this, and he's multiplied signs, and he's made this whole experience, this giant fiasco in Egypt for a particular purpose. And it's found in verse 14. So that, at the end of verse 14, "...you may know that there is none like me in all the earth or in all the land." And he wants them to know this. And then beyond just it being known in Egypt, look at verse 16. He says that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So the knowledge of God through these 10 signs is going to begin in Egypt. But then as people talk about it, it's going to be proclaimed. God's goal is that it would be proclaimed all over the earth, that everybody would hear about this and they would be Thoroughly impressed with who this God is and that they would know he is the sovereign God and there are no rivals to his authority and his power. In all that he does, God does it for this purpose. We could say it this way, God is radically God-centered. He's radically God-centered, as John Piper would say. I mean, this is all over the scriptures. Everywhere, God talks about himself and his purposes this way. Let me show you a couple of examples. Isaiah 43, why does God forgive sins? Well, ultimately, that's not even for your benefit. It does benefit us, as everything that God does benefits those who follow him, those he's chosen to be in Christ. But look what he says here. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions, For my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God puts his character on display in the way that he forgives sins. It's so his name will be glorified. Later in Isaiah, he says this, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. He's talking to Israel here. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Why does God restrain his anger? Why does he work the way he does in any circumstance? Why does he bring affliction into our lives, to other people's lives, for this purpose? So he can honor and glorify himself, so he can put his character on display. The consistent testimony of Scripture from start to finish is that God is committed to the spread and the proclamation of his glory. It's so he will increasingly look bigger and bigger and more wonderful and more magnificent, and he will be seen for who he is. You could say it like this, God's goal is the going public of the manifold excellencies of his character. He wants everybody to see his wisdom and his mercy and his grace and his righteousness and marvel at that and worship him for that. Now, as I think you you see this commitment that God has for his own glory, then you and I have to ask ourselves, are we, as created beings made in God's image, are we driven by the most important things? Is this singular focus of God in all that He does our singular focus? Ask it like this. Do I organize and structure my life around God's glory and the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ, or is my heart constantly attracted to lesser things? Am I sort of... Dabbling around in all of these secondary things and giving my affection and my attention to something that is not the ultimate reason for my existence. There's this great uh, Q&A that I read, you can listen to it online with John Piper, that someone asked him over the last couple weeks about this tendency in Christians to increasingly be taken up with all sorts of peripheral ideas and sort of strange um, interests and to be really devoted to and studying and passionate about all of these sideline issues. And this is something that is increasingly happen, happening among believers. And I found Piper's answer to this very helpful. You should read the whole thing, but I'll give you a section of it here. I can't remember if I put this on the screen. I did. You can follow along here. Here's what he says. What I've seen over the years is that there's a certain kind of personality, or more seriously, we could call it a certain kind of spiritual condition that seems unable to be profoundly engaged with, unable to be deeply moved by, unable to rejoice in the great, central, glorious realities of the Christian faith. They're always on the margins. It's as though their minds and hearts are like magnets that are constantly attracting little iron fragments from the edges instead of the big, massive thing at the center. And ultimately, the things of greatest importance get neglected. The glory, the wonder, the beauty of the Christian faith is passed over, and they're always fascinated with marginal things that are not preeminent. I mean, this is the the ethos of our day for Christians. To be concerned about all the silly, lesser things. To always be attracting these little iron fragments when we've got this God who is at the center of our faith, who is glorious and massive and merciful and righteous and just, and somehow he just doesn't hold our interest. It's like a dog that's just distracted by everything. Ooh, look at this. Ooh, look at this. Over here, over here. And God is at the center of everything, and we are, we are taken up with all these other things. Listen, our, our time on earth is so limited. We just don't get that much. I'm increasingly realizing this. And we know, you know, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ, you know that you are made for this one massive thing, to pursue the knowledge of God and know the glory of God and give your life in whatever way he sees fit to bring him honor and glory, to make him look big. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. So why? Why give our time and our affection and our energy and our attention to all of these lesser things? Why do it? It's an incredible miscalculation of a gift that God has given to us. And so, Moses' words here and God's words to Moses put all of this in perspective. And he speaks these words to Pharaoh and puts the whole plague experience in perspective. And it helps us to clarify why we're here and what we're living for. But obviously, Pharaoh can't see it. And he is still living with self at the center. Look at verse 17. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. So now, because of that, because of Pharaoh's pride and arrogance, God is going to increase the intensity of these plagues. We've reached the third cycle and now things get significantly worse. Look at verses 18 through 21. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the The field. What's amazing here about this is that God's goal in having people recognize his power and his sovereignty and his righteousness is starting to happen among the Egyptians. I love that God sort of gives them a warning here, you know, and I like I don't know how this worked out. I don't know if word got around because. The officials were talking about it. I don't know if Pharaoh put out a proclamation of warning people because he was scared of what was going to happen. I don't know what happened here, but God puts out a warning, says, listen, if you want to save your livestock and save yourself, don't be outside tomorrow when this happens. And it's amazing that some people, it seems, actually took God's word on this and feared his word enough to act on it. And they did what he told them to do. But unfortunately, many, many people didn't. Look at verses 22 to 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. It's not just the hail here, it's the storm. This massive storm sweeps across Egypt and doesn't touch where the Israelites are living. But he says this a couple of times, this is like nothing they've ever seen in the history of Egypt. Thousands probably of years at this point in Egyptian history, and nothing like this had ever been experienced. It's a whole storm, but the hail in particular is huge and is deadly. Now, I looked a little bit online to see what sort of hailstorms have been experienced over the last couple years and documented in modern history. And there are some pretty crazy storms that have happened. You can find pictures of hail like this that people have, I mean, that's not just a snowball, right? I mean, that's that's hail that fell from the sky. And there have been instances where hundreds of people have been killed in hailstorms around the globe. And you can imagine if a chunk of ice like this came flying at you going 100 miles an hour, which is about what it would be coming, falling from the sky, maybe more, you would be in trouble. And if God describes the hail here as very heavy hail, it's probably bigger than this. And if it's completely covering the land to the point where it's breaking limbs off of trees, if you're out in this, you're in trouble, really bad trouble. And so obviously many people and many animals are killed by this, and it doesn't touch the land of Israel at all. Now, as this happens, and as all of these signs have been unfolding, one of the themes that we've seen has been to watch Pharaoh's reaction to these things happening, and his response after each sign seems to be changing, and that's what we find here as well. This time he starts to not repent, but he starts to acknowledge that he has been unjust and that he's been acting wrongly. I don't think he's really seeing that he's sinned, which is kind of what the language says here, but he's at least starting to acknowledge, okay, I messed up. I shouldn't have done this. Look at verses 27 and 28. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned or I've done unjustly. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And so Moses agrees to plead with God, which has happened before, and the storm will stop. But notice here what Moses says to Pharaoh, and I think this is fascinating. Verse 29, Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city. And he he emphasizes here that, He's going to wait till he goes out of the city. Now, why does he do that? Well, it's not explicit here, but, but the guess is that the hailstorm is still going on, and Moses wants Pharaoh to watch him walk out of the palace in the midst of this hailstorm and not get hit with hail until he gets out of the city, and then he prays to God, very much still alive, and the whole thing stops. That's a pretty dramatic scene to have happen, right? Moses just walks swiftly out of the palace and Pharaoh's watching him go and he's not getting hit by any hail in the midst of this massive hailstorm. I love it. And I think that's what's going on here. And this would have hopefully, in Moses's mind, solidified to Pharaoh that God is in absolute control and Moses can't be touched Verses 29 and through verse 30, Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. They feared the word of the Lord to a certain extent. They knew that God could do what he said, but they didn't actually have reverence and respect and worship for God in their hearts. Now, one of the results of of hail like this, as we read before, is that it destroys much of the agricultural life of Egypt, and this was what they were all about. I mean, they had animals, but it was an agricultural society nestled around the Nile River, and this hail would have taken out much of that. Look at verses 31 and 32. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud, but the wheat... And the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. Now, despite all this, you and I have come to expect the ending to each one of these signs. And we find it again in 33 to 35. So Moses went out from, of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again. And hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Once there's relief, God strengthens, emboldens Pharaoh's heart to continue down this pathway of self destruction. And we'll talk more about that dynamic in a few minutes. Now, as you saw here, we read about Pharaoh's hard heart at the end of this plague, but the eighth one actually begins with God addressing Pharaoh's hard heart. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, right? So God's connecting the hardness of heart and his display of his character through these signs, Verse 2, and here's why he's doing this. Here's why he's hardening Pharaoh's heart and why he's performing these signs. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Now, think about this. God, in the seventh plague, told us why he was doing all of these plagues, and he said, I want the fame of my name to go out geographically, all around the world. Now, he gives another reason why he's doing all of these plagues. He tells Moses, I want the glory and the fame of my name to go on generationally, geographically and generationally, all around the world and to reverberate down through time from generation to generation. Now it's quite clear in Scripture, if you read the Old Testament with Israel, that God uses parents to teach and to train and to disciple their children. And this helps us to know that this training should be focused on helping them see the glory of God demonstrated in his redemption because that's how the Israelite children would have heard this. God worked through these plagues to redeem his people, to redeem our ancestors. And so he demonstrates his character and his glory through redemption and he lets them know who he is in his works here. And so for us... I think this this reason for doing the plague should cause us to reflect. Parents? Grandparents too? What do your words and your lifestyle tell your children about the character and the worth of God? Does your lifestyle and do your words put on display the character of God to where your children go? God is worth it. He is glorious, and there's no one and nothing better than Him. Will they pick up? Will your words explicitly teach, but also will they pick up from the way you live that God is the most important person in the universe, or will they pick up that money is the most important reality and the thing that you should build your life on? You can say all you want that God's the most important thing, but what does your life display to them with money and with a whole bunch of other areas? God's purpose for our lives is to spread the fame of his worth and his character all around the world geographically and down through time generationally, and these plagues are how he's going to do that, and they happen for both of those reasons. Look at verses three to six. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. They shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. Sort of a one-two punch here. Hail and locusts, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. I love this. He storms out after he pronounces this plague. The interaction between Moses and Pharaoh is intensifying. He announces here, after the storm has ended, what's going to happen next. And it's quite clear that this one is going to be a doozy. Now, for you and I, we're not very familiar with this whole locust swarm thing, right, I've never really seen one, and I'm not really that scared of a locust storm. But to this day, in places in Africa and in the Middle East, the possibility of a swarm of locusts is devastating to their way of life. You can find, once again, gotta love Google, you can find pictures of swarms of locusts that I'm not even sure do justice to what this would have been like. There are websites online that you can go to that track possibilities of locust swarms. They keep track of these things so that they can warn farmers. Now, I don't know what the farmers do to keep them away, but they try to predict it. It's almost like a weather, weather.com, it's like locust.com. Don't, I don't know if that's actually what it is, but they, the point is they keep track of these things because this is devastating to farmers and to people living in these areas. And there's really not much you can do about it in some ways, and the devastation they can cause is unlimited. And here, Moses promises the Egyptians again, you've never seen anything like this. You guys know locust swarms. You've never seen anything like this. And then he storms out. Now, what's amazing here is we've we've not encountered a reaction of Pharaoh and his servants like we see here yet in the plagues. Everything's pretty much gone the same way, and now it's intensifying, but here things begin to change a little bit. Look at verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? I mean, this is significant. Pharaoh's officials are pushing back against him, even though they think he's divine. And they're pushing back, and notice what they say, that Moses is a snare to the Egyptians. Well, what's a snare? To be snared is to be trapped in a situation that you don't want to be in and denied your freedom. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that's exactly what Pharaoh and his officials had done with the Israelites. The people who had snared them and denied them their freedom and kept them in a situation they didn't want to be in now are noticing that they're being put in the same situation. They're getting a taste of their own medicine here, which is just beautiful. And so in response, before this plague even happens, it hasn't even started yet, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron back in because he knows what's going to happen based on what God has said. Look at verses 8 through 11. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? "'Moses said, "'We will go with our young and our old. "'We will go with our sons and daughters "'and with our flocks and herds, "'for we must hold a feast to the Lord.' "'But he said to them, "'The Lord be with you "'if, I, if ever I let you and your little ones go. "'Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. "'No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, "'for that is what you are asking.' "'And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence.'" And so he calls them back and tries to negotiate again. And in Pharaoh's mind, the men would have been the ones who actually worshipped. And so in his religious world, he's thinking, well, just send the men out to to do their thing. You don't need the women and children. And Moses makes it clear that's not acceptable here. Now, what Pharaoh says in verse 10 is fascinating. It says, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. In English, this would be sarcastic. Sarcastic. It would read something like this. Sure, go ahead and leave, and God will have to be with you if I let you out of here with all of your women and children. He's giving it sarcastically. And then Moses and Aaron are kicked out of his presence, and the plague begins. Verses 12 to 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. It's hard for us to even fathom what this would be like, but it is completely devastating. Nothing is left. What are they going to eat? No vegetation, no trees, no food. Pharaoh has to respond. Verse 16. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. You can see the the development here in, in his response. Forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. God can start the plague, and he can end it just as quickly, demonstrating his sovereignty and his power. But you know how it ends again. Even after all this devastation, look at verse Twenty, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. Now, God hardened his heart. Why would God do that here? Let me make sure you understand what is happening and to connect this to other passages in Scripture that describe circumstances like this. Think of God hardening Pharaoh's heart as God confirming his judgment on Pharaoh for Pharaoh's sin. Pharaoh was arrogant. He had enslaved God's people and his predecessors had done this for hundreds of years. And so God strengthens and emboldens him in his defiance of God in order to bring judgment on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians and obviously to glorify his name. Think of this along the lines of Romans chapter 1. Therefore, God, speaking of the sin of human beings, God gave them up in the desires or the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The idolatry of our hearts obviously is sinful. And when we pursue that, God at times gives us up to that. And that is his judgment. And isn't that amazing that one of the worst judgments that God can bring on us is to let us continue to sin? I mean, what does that tell you and me as believers in Christ, as followers of Christ who pander some sin area or who indulge in some sin area on the side and sort of coddle it. God here says, one of the worst judgments that you can have is for me to just let you do that and to let you go, to let you have what you want. Because that's what this is describing here, the desires of their heart. God says, Go right ahead. And it's exactly what he's doing. He's strengthening Pharaoh's heart to continue to want what he wants and to continue to pursue his desires. And this is God's way of bringing judgment on Pharaoh and of honoring and glorifying himself. Sin is self-destructive. And when God takes the reins off and lets us pursue our sinful desires, it's judgment. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And so with all of that in the background, we come to the ninth plague in chapter 10 verses 21 to 29. And this is the last plague of the cycle. And as we've seen in the first two cycles, the last plague of each cycle doesn't tell us that Moses goes and announces what he's going to do to Pharaoh. Instead, it just tells us that God says, do this plague and Moses and Aaron do it. And that's what we see here, verses 21 to 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now it's easy for us to read this and sort of shrug our shoulders and go, What's the big deal? And I think part of the reason for that is because we live in a modern world where we can turn the lights on at any time that we want to. But here, specifically in Egypt, they didn't have that, but bigger than that, remember, Pharaoh's job as the divine son of the Egyptian gods was to maintain the natural order so that the, the Egyptians could flourish. And there's nothing more necessary to life on this earth than the rising of the sun every day. You get food, what you're doing, you can work, you get vitamin D, right? Like all the goodness that we have comes from the rising of the sun. And the rhythm of life is brought to a halt here. The sun not coming up and not setting each night is completely devastating to the Egyptians. To have darkness cover the land with such ferocity, and it was ferocious. I mean, the way he describes it, it was pitch black. It was a darkness they could feel, and they had no way to sort of get around this in their culture. To have darkness cover the land for three days and to have Pharaoh unable to do anything about it would have indicated to the Egyptians that the world was coming to an end and they were going to die. I mean, that's that's what they would have thought here. The whole natural order has come undone. The sun isn't even coming up in the morning, and it's dark all the time. So this is not good. And amazingly enough, Pharaoh still tries to maintain some control. Look at verse 24. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. God had made it clear to Moses the plan here. The game plan was complete and total freedom from Egypt And for him to constitute them as a new people in the the wilderness and then to bring them into the promised land. That was the game. That was the goal. And so Moses wasn't going to accept this here to leave their flocks and their herds behind. They were freed from slavery in order to serve a new master. Completely, totally, all of them freed from slavery. And nothing less than that would be acceptable. Look at verses 27 to 29. Verse 27, but the Lord strengthened or hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. And this episode ends quite differently from all the other ones. Obviously, the intensity has reached its peak now. And now, as you read this, you're probably, if you've never read this before, you're probably left wondering, what is going to happen next? What is coming next? With Pharaoh this mad and willing to denounce the prophet of God, who obviously has the power to execute these plagues, if he's that angry and that unwilling to let the Israelites go and you reach this point, then it's like, what is going to happen next? And so as you read this, you're hopefully anticipating the next part of this plot, the next development in this plot. So let's go back and summarize all of these nine plagues as we're building. And I hope you can feel the the progression of this building toward God's deliverance. God has made his sovereignty over nature quite clear. And he's indicated by that he is superior to any rival God. And as you think about that, keep in mind today his purpose for these signs, his purpose that we talked about earlier. God's glory and his fame are meant to be proclaimed geographically and generationally. And it's our responsibility to continue that proclamation. But here's the thing about continuing that proclamation. This is not something you can do It's not something you can proclaim or preach or tell unless your heart is devoted personally to knowing the Lord. It has to begin there with you as an individual recognizing God's purpose and getting caught up in that purpose and giving your life singularly focused on that purpose. And so take some time today. Take some time here in the next few moments as we head into the Lord's Supper and reevaluate your life, the structure of your life, what your life is communicating to others and reevaluate if you are living as you were designed to live with God as your goal and with God as your aim. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've made us. I pray that you would help us today to... Get back our focus on you, Lord. So often I lose it day in and day out. I drift. My attention goes to other things. I forget. But Lord, help us through this passage of Scripture and through these plagues to remember why we're here and remember what will bring solid joy and substantial pleasure into our lives. Help us to get to the point where we are weary of ourselves and we just want to know you and honor and glorify you. So we thank you for our time together this morning around your table. We pray that Christ would be exalted and honored through this. It's in his name we pray, amen.